On this episode of AV Week, we'll talk about Control 4's record revenues, wearable technologies, and Sharp TV is leaving the U.S. market. That's all next on AV Week. The network for the AV industry. What are you listening to? This. This is AV. This. This. This is AV Nation. This is AV Nation. AV Week is brought to you by our fine group of underwriters, companies like Innovad. This is AV Week, episode 207, recorded Friday, August 7th, 2015. Gateway Drug. Ready. AV, AV Week. Performing scan. Week. Online. This is AV Week. And welcome to another edition of AV Week, your news source for the information and the integration world. Welcome again, everybody. I'm your host, George Tucker. As you can see, I'm not Tim Albright, but uh, he is away getting his learn on, as they say, with Utology. Uh, today, we have a great set of guests. I want to introduce them real quick to get us underway. First off is Simon Dudley. He is from Accession Events. Sir, good to see you. Hey, good to see you, George. All right. Thank you for being on. We also have Jenny Millpacker. She is from DeMille Global. Welcome to the show, Jenny. Thank you, George. All right. And, of course, our first of the month Friday's special guest, Andrea Medeiros from Tech Home Builder. Hi. Thanks for having me on again. All right. Good to see you again. <laughs> All right. So let's get underway here a little bit. The first one I want to share with you guys, it came out in our friends from CE Pro, and I think it touches right on the issues of control and automation. Well, what have we been doing? For the last couple of years, we always wait for that tipping point, right? When is it going to go mass market? One of those companies that's tried its best is Control 4. They're a publicly held company uh, with uh, you know investors, and I believe there's a couple of uh, other groups involved. The thing here is Control 4 beat estimates, yet their stock is still languishing. And one of the things that Julie Jacobson, and I love when Julie does these really in-depth articles. This one goes really down, dives deep about it. Uh, one of the main Morgan Stanley analysts asked, what is Apple Homelink at a Control 4 earnings report session? <laughs> so I'm going to start off with you, Simon. What does this actually mean for how we're reaching the populace and where we're actually situated? Well... Okay, so I'm not a home automation expert, but I'll give you an opinion because I've seen this in other worlds. Mm -hmm. Microsoft has played this. I know I'm bringing in a third player here, but Microsoft have, for the last 30 years that I've touched them, been involved in ruining businesses for other people by saying, well, well, we'll have something out in the fullness of time, and you should not do anything until we're in that position to do it. Apple's doing the same thing now to Control 4. They are saying with their home kit, Oh, look, we're, we're going to be the guys in this, and you want to wait for us. And they've got nothing, and no one can buy anything, or very much, very useful from them at all. And almost certainly, they'll never do what Control 4 is trying to achieve. But what they are doing is making the whole market sit there and wait until Apple either do or don't do something. It's something that these really big companies are able to do. Nobody else can do it. Um, and, and it's also an indicative of an attitude that Google and Microsoft and Apple have, which is we're quite happy to build this walled garden and effectively everyone else can go away. And they're quite prepared to do that. They don't need standards. They're not interested. They've got a, a community that's already big enough that they can just simply go and dominate it. Or in this case, I think it's particularly outrageous but entirely standard thing to do. Say, we have nothing, but you should wait for us. And that's going to destroy Control 4 if they don't manage to bring some other big players on board with them. It's a problem. Mm. Uh, Jenny, I'm going to throw part of this to you, and as I do, I'm going to show something. There's a quotation here that says, Control 4 may suffer if it continues to ignore the consumer enthusiast market, and if it fails to deliver a cloud-based platform and business model that generates recurring revenue for itself and its for dealers. So uh, I point to you at the demo group, the recurring revenue thing seems to be more about what the investors want rather than growth, because they want to see a continual statement. But take us along this from your side as well. Well, the 
the dealers are going to want that as well because that will increase their revenue. And if it increases their revenue, they're going to want to sell more of the product. So that would thereby increase control force market share. Well, talk to me though so, about like the enthusiast market versus the integrator centric market. You know, Homeworks or HomeKit and Brillo from Google that it's reported to do, the whole Nest thing, it's really aimed at the, not quite DIYer, but they're not looking to give you the entire piece. They want to add on as they go with right. mostly the consumer putting it in. It, that doesn't really jive with how we value quality in the industry itself from our perspective. Exactly. So I think the middle is going to drop out. You're going to see more DIY. You're going to see more higher end and there's really not going to be much in the middle at some point. And with Apple, they haven't really played nice in the past, um, but they're promising to do so now. And it's a sexier product than, say, Control 4. So um, it's friendlier for the, for the homeowner to add things themselves, and it's, it has a sexier reputation. So we'll see. Well, I, you know, I'm going to keep you on this for a second. What do you mean by a sexier reputation? I mean, Control 4 well, does the design have... of it. Okay. The, yes, they have the design, but the design of the iPhone, the design of the iPad, it has a better feel, a better user interface. It's easier okay. to navigate. So. Andrea, let's throw this to you. We've touched on this in the past together. Mm -hmm. uh, Jenny brings up the sort of sexier ecosystem, right? They have products that are designed very nicely. Uh, they may not do everything we think they should do and as uh, smoothly and say, universally as we think they should do, but... From that market of the tech home builder looking to install stuff and sell to a ready, you know, to a ready-made home build or a home buyer, what are we looking at? I mean, does Control Four matter in those cases, or is it really going towards, hey, this is right on the shelf, I can touch it at Best Buy, I want it? I think Control Four matters, but we've—I think I've said that on here before—that mm -hmm. we've actually talked to builders that are waiting for products like the Apple Home Kit. Um, they're waiting for companies that they know really well because I think they've been burned in the past. So mm -hmm. they're literally waiting for these big name companies to come out with a product to kind of try that first. Now, not to say Control 4 isn't a big name within the builder realm, but a lot of, say, the high-volume builders, the production builders, they're kind of responding to the consumer demand. Where a luxury builder, you know, they're going to turn to a system like Savant, and not control for because their luxury customs want more of their luxury consumers want more mm -hmm. of a brand like Savant that has more of a luxury system. So then you ask yourself, where does control for kind of fit into this mix? Because we have high volume builders that are really kind of not working with integrators. Some of them are, I don't want to say none of them are. So they're really dealing with consumer demand and the consumers just like Jenny said, they kind of are looking for what's sexy and they're familiar with the iPhone and they're familiar with the iPad. And then you have the luxury and custom builders and they're not typically using a Control 4 system. So then it's kind of like, where does Control 4 fit in? Talk to me, they also just signed an agreement with, I think it's Ryland. Hmm. Uh, I don't know the group offhand, you might know that it. it's in your world, there's a, they're a building yeah. consortium. Yeah, Ryland Homes maybe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me, and we've definitely talked to plenty of builders who are using Control 4, but there are so many people flooding the marketplace right now, whether it's, you know, high-volume market, mid-market, luxury market. There are probably 20, like, home automation systems these builders can choose between. We literally just covered three home automation systems builders might not know about. So we have Notion, we have TO. What's the other one we just covered? There's Fabaro. Mm. There are so many yes. home automation systems for these builders to choose between. So if they hear a company like Apple, maybe they'll wait for it because they're like, oh, they've done some good stuff in the past. Maybe they'll work oh. for us. And, and I would argue if you're working with builders, then mm -hmm. builders are going to go with a name that clients are going to know mm -hmm. already. You know, they're not, it doesn't matter if Control 4 or any of these other guys have got a better product. If they can, if a builder can say when he's building a, another 20 houses, oh look, we've got the Apple logo on the front of the mm -hmm. show home, oh my. It doesn't matter if it doesn't do very much. I'm sure it will in the future. It matters that it's got an Apple logo on it and it's sexy. Exactly. Um, like I said, for the high volume builders, that matters. That sex yeah. appeal really matters to get someone so, to buy their new home versus an older home. 
so Jenny, let me throw this to you again. We're talking about a marketing thing here, really. You've got a mega company right. that's global on a consumer electronics level trying to get into a market, though they say they're not really. It's sort of an add-on. But both Microsoft has had the home of the future for, I don't know, the last 20 years. right? We occasionally see some report on it in Commercial Integrator or Residential Systems Magazine or any of those guys. Um, I'm sure Tech Home has done something of you know the film of the future from Apple or from, from Microsoft. Uh, this is a marketing issue, and it's come up, I think, for the last five or six years in the industry. So w what do we do to not say that that's bad, but to bring in those enthusiasts to a system that's not as garden-walled? Because they all might say that Apple is a garden wall, uh, not a garden wall, and Control 4 is, but they really are the same thing. You have to buy the Apple chipset. You have to buy the Apple protocol systems. How do we make these greater systems as attractive? I think it's about their look and their build quality and obviously their advertising. They need to get out there with similarly quality product and to get it in the consumer's hands. Yeah, all right. Uh, th then again, to, the, to that in nature, uh, part of the report from the folks at Control 4, the, some of the, the main guys, uh, I keep forgetting their names, so I'm going to look this up real quick as we do. Oh, uh, Martin and Dan, Dan Strong and Martin Play Plan. Forgive me if I've said that wrong. Um, said that you know they're really out there to finally take what they test marketed in marketing and push that forward and see if they can make themselves a real sort of consumer electronics company in that way. All right. Well, let's move on. We're going to talk about now broadband. One of those things that we always want more of, but we never seem to be able to get because, of course, our companies won't let us. Here is a uh, a town in Oregon. I believe they're called Sandy, Oregon. They have 100 megabits. For just forty dollars a month, and it's well, not Muni Five, but it's a municipal run broadband. Uh, they did it for several reasons. Because one, they couldn't get it from their supplier. I think Verizon back a couple of years ago, and they wanted to do it better. They had a combination of uh, very urban, suburban, and sort of remote—I can call it farmland—that <laughs> uh, wanted these services. Uh, a lot of states really don't allow this kind of thing to happen. Simon, let, let's uh, take you on. You will talk about your book in a bit, but this is one of those things that does touch on your book. That end of certain, the end of certainty. Yeah, they're it, sort of pushing. Up, uh, they're making a utility and pushing out a private company. Well, it's interesting, and I mean, the first thing to say is, uh, and I know this is an American audience we're primarily going to. Socialism works <laughs> uh, at, at a very small scale, right? Small countries, small communities. The town of Sandy's only got. Uh, 10,000 people in it. If you don't have special interest and you've only got one supplier, then a, a a private company is much less likely to serve your citizens well than an organization that is built on the principle of looking after the people who actually live in the town. So it seems to be pretty effective. It's also interesting that I live in Austin, Texas, as I'm sure you can tell, and um, the uh, the fiber here is being run by Google. I'm very unhappy to admit that I'm now half a mile away from where the end of the cable ends. But so in, in certain areas, you can do very nice things. I think it proves that single companies in a market do have a nasty habit of sitting on their hands and not doing anything. But I don't know how well it would scale. You wouldn't want the whole government running it. It's also interesting to me that the, the uh, event is as you rightly suggest, it's $40 for 100 meg, and it's $60 for a gigabit. Right. Now, I'm sure like everyone else in this call and probably everyone listening, you go, well, everyone obviously buys gigabit. And actually, I think they, I forget exactly the percentage, but I think it was 4 or 6%. Pretty small percentage actually goes for the gigabit. Yeah, I think that's about right. I'd go for the gigabit purely for, for, um, for well, bragging rights. Uh, I've got <laughs> 300 meg now, I want gigabit next week, and I want whatever the next one is, peak a bite, peak a bit after that. So I, I think it's interesting that a small town can do a nice job. I think the bigger the society or the community, the less well that sort of technology works. Uh, Andrea, it's a utility. And in this case, they're treating it as a utility, which is why it brings the cost down. They're saying they did it without raising taxes. They just did it in revenue funding and said, here, that's a bond issue, I guess, is what they're saying, and raised the money to do it. Is this an advantage to getting 
delivery of that services, do you think that would actually spur, uh, spur people? I'm going to say spur, excuse me. Spur people to want to build developments in that area? Uh, or is this... I don't really know how it would really matter to the builder. I mean, it definitely matters to the consumer, but whether the city or Verizon's providing the service, I'm not sure if that would matter to the builder, um, unless they're a builder who was going to use Cox Home Life, and maybe they're not going to use that home automation anymore because that cable company isn't providing the Internet. But other than that, I don't really know how this would affect the builder. Hmm. Well, I see it sort of like, and when we talk about it, it's electricity, right? So utilities, electricity, it's your water, it's your Internet or your broadband. Um, there's sort of a, a comfort level in knowing that that municipality is going to make it work no matter what. Uh, you don't uh, have to worry about... Are municipalities, George? Hmm. I mean, for my power, <laughs> I try to. I mean... I'm not going out and fixing those three-phase <laughs> wires coming off the pole. Um, yeah, know, I mean, from a reliability to. standpoint, uh, I guess. But I think the cable companies are already so on edge right now that are also providing the Internet because everyone, just like we talked about before this, is we are all turning off cable. So I don't know if the Internet companies are more on edge and trying to provide a better service now as well. So well, it's kind of like a catch-22. I think, you know, if I can throw a, a, a spanner in the works here, the problem all the cable providers have, and everybody really, is that the technology change is so fast mm -hmm. that we're ending up, in a, ending up in an environment where the lifespan of the product is shorter than the rollout time of the technology. So if you said to Verizon, AT&T, Cox, whoever you wanted to, mm -hmm. right, let's put fiber in everywhere. Well, they're already beginning to develop 5G wireless technology, which would probably have close to, or I don't know if it would exceed, but it would certainly have 94% of the population at least a good, as good an internet connection as a wired connection. So no one wants to put in a technology that halfway through digging up every street in the mm -hmm. country to put fiber in, it's all been replaced by wireless. So what, what seems to be happening is all these companies are as much as possible sweating the asset they've got and failing to upgrade anybody to the latest because they don't want to. Who wants to put a $20 billion investment in when it all could be thrown in the mm -hmm. bin by a technological change that could replace it all? It's the problem with Metcalfe's law or with, with, um, uh, with uh, Moore's law. You know, every 18 months – Compute power doubles, which means every five years you get a t factor of ten change. So if you have but a I'm even, sorry, but I'm even more hesitant to think that a municipality that's dealing with potholes and bigger problems that they're trying to put into their budget that they're going to be able to afford to keep up with all of these changes in technology. They don't have as much money coming in. Yeah, but well, they do, they do have a vested interest to their consumers. At least they're at least they're invested in that community where you could argue that Verizon could say, I don't care about them. I'm going to go and do something in another part of the country. Well, you know, yeah. this is something I want to throw to Jenny real quick on this. So what I'll talk about is, uh, Simon, what you've talked about was sort of the law of averages, just sort of like the electrical companies. We have an average voltage of. It'll go up and down throughout the day, um, but on average it stays a certain level, and that's what they think is okay for the wider audience. Uh, Jenny, the municipality running this there's some some factors on this that may come into play when it comes to our remote services and home automation. Do we rely more on the municipality running it in a very small, local, as Simon said, a socialized methodology? Or do we really want to go to the Verizons and Comcasts uh, or Coxes of the world and say, I trust you more for my services and controlling and maintaining temperature, etc.? Well... I have to tell you, we have some remote jobs in Colorado and Washington State where being able to remote into the job is very difficult because their internet's coming from satellite. So I don't care where it's coming from. If it's coming from the municipality, it will be more reliable than that. Um, yeah, yeah, okay. And do you think there'd be any restrictions? I mean, we always have to deal with the. The common thing with internet, we're not going to let you use port 80 because that means you're serving a web page and that means you're commercial and you must buy a commercial grade level. Is, is, does that change the ratio in any way in your mind, in your eyes? No, I don't mm. think so. 
So good idea, utility, it works there, but it may not be a, a universal thing where we all would desire. Well, I, I think every com every small community, if you can't get multiple competitors into a market, you know, I'm in Austin, so it's a painly a pretty big city, 11th mm -hmm. biggest in America now, I think. I've got competition. So if I don't like uh, what Time Warner's doing, I can go to AT&T. Now, you could argue mm. both are pretty awful, but I get in 330 megabits down. It's not totally terrible. So I do have, but if I'm in some rural community and I'm at the end of the conversation for AT&T or Verizon, and they don't really care less about me, which they painfully don't if I'm in a little town of 10,000 people, then I think I'd rather have the municipality run it for a while. And then when another technology like 5G comes along and we're all running 200 megabit or 500 megabit on our cell phones and our iPads and everything, and then we don't even need to worry about our connections to the house at all, well, then you probably pack up that stuff and throw it away. But it is a problem. Or, how do you, you atomize it? Go ahead. What if these companies see the city making money and then it, the city suddenly becomes more appealing to the service coming in? <laughs> I think that's a possibility. Well, one of the reasons in this particular example, and certainly in others, one of the reasons that this town was able to do its own internet connection was because one of the big providers hadn't tied up the city council like they have in so many places and said, we will come and give you an internet connection. However, you will sign a contract that says for 25 years or some ludicrous period of time, we will have no competition. And in 1995 or somewhere like that, when almost no one in the city council knew what that even meant, then they were all happy to sign away the internet rights of their city for some period of time. Luckily for the members of Sandy, um, they decided that that wasn't the right thing to do and they had some forward thinking people. So most towns couldn't set up their own internet connection, even if they wanted to, because Verizon or AT&T or whoever already have a contract that says you won't do that. And that's one of the reasons you get such poor quality experiences because they're running a monopoly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and a lot of state legislators have actually come on board and said, no, you can't do that, and have refused to let it happen. Um, yeah, it seems like in a small, and again, in the case of this one, remember that they, they said that the provider said, nope, can't do that, sorry, and basically walked away <laughs> and said, thanks, but no thanks. Uh, I think they went back to DSL. All right, well, let's move on to another issue. Uh, Sharp is getting out of the consumer television market. Now, I say consumer television market because... When I published part of this story, the guys at Commercial Integrator, and by the way, this story is from our friends at Sound and Vision, um, they said that Sharp says that they're getting out of the consumer one, but they are actually staying in the commercial branding. Uh, I'm not quite clear what that means. Why would you get out of consumer a larger market and not stay in, 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 in a larger market? I'm not quite clear on that. Um, Jenny, let's start. I'm not Jenny, let's start with you. Does it really matter to you that uh, the television that you get, the Aquos or similar, is made by Sharp or some subsidiary in Korea under a different name? Well, that completely depends on the, the quality of the product. So if they can maintain their quality, um, no. But that, well, again, that remains so to be seen. Yeah, well, let's talk about that, because Sharp has been one of the innovators. So they've done a lot of innovation on the LCD market. They were one of the first ones to do it, weren't they? They, they saw the, uh, the light at the end of the tunnel saying, this is going to be as good quality as, say, plasma, as everybody thought, would never go away. Uh, but now they're going to be handing that off, basically, to someone who's just going to be making the same stamped-out piece of machinery every time. To my eyes, that means they're going to lose some market share, but does it really matter to our clientele on the whole? That's interesting. Our clients really like Sony because that's the name that they know. So, and that may not be the best product for them. So, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it does depend on features. Uh, Andrea, so we've got another television company getting out of the, the business. We, a couple of months ago and a couple of weeks ago, we talked about Panasonic and a number of others. Uh, Jenny mentioned that brand name recognition again, just like our story with Control 4, seems to be Sony in this case. Do our clients really care when they walk into Best Buy to buy that extra room, a TV for the kids' room, uh, or or should we be demanding something more? 
Uh, I think Jenny's right. I think consumers are, are smarter than you think, and I think it doesn't matter. I mean, sometimes it matters the name, but it more matters when you look up those reviews and see what the quality is of that system, no matter what system it is. Yeah, right. And, and Simon, again, this is the third or fourth Japanese company to pull out. It's all going to China, North Korea, uh, North Korea, <laughs> South Korea. <laughs> no, that's really very, uh, that's very forward-thinking there, North Korea. Well, no, but North Korea does have that little development area just over the border, don't they? They frequently <laughs> shut it down to be, uh, to be nasty or something. But God, we keep talking uh, about socialism, don't we? Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, but, I, I would, I would argue a couple of things on this whole topic. I would say. I mean, I'm just, while we're talking, I'm thinking, how many TVs have we got in my house? Uh, well, it depends what you define as a TV versus a monitor. But let's mm -hmm. say we just define things as TVs today. I think we got seven. I mean, there's four of us here. We obviously need seven televisions. It might be six. I can't even remember. I, I do wonder if there's an argument that says, you know what TV should have on the front? They shouldn't have a badge saying Toshiba or Samsung. They should simply have what the star rating on Amazon is. Because people mm -hmm. go to Amazon your average consumer and goes right what's the highest starred 65 inch TV or whatever the television is because it's a completely consumer item anyway you buy a TV three years later you throw it away um, it's back to the speed of change is so great right so think about it this way in 1980 in today's money an average television in the US would cost you something like $20,000 in today's money and today you can buy a, well, for $1,000, you can buy a probably a 70-inch TV or 65 or something, and, and maybe a 4K of 55-inch. And by the time this is this podcast is listened to as, as a podcast rather than a live, it'll be $800. The price is just dropping away. So I think that 20 years ago, 30 years ago, people bought a Sony Trinitron or something similar because they knew it's a quality item it mattered. You know, buying a TV 30 years ago, 35 years ago, was like buying a car. Uh, you didn't just wander into Best Buy or Circuit City, I guess, in those days. You just pick one up. Today you do. So mm. uh, add to cart or go to Costco if you've got a big enough car and shove it in the back. Right. right? That's what you do. You don't. <laughs> so, so I think that there's an argument now that says it doesn't matter because you're going to only keep it two years before the next 4K TV comes out or the 8K TV or whatever, you know, the 3D, obviously not 3D. No one ever bought a 3D no, TV. No, don't mention anymore. 3D. <laughs> no. But as a general concept, I think it's irrelevant now. I think you just put the star rating on the front. And these Chinese manufacturers no one's heard of, they're going to come and dominate the U.S. market because they're already dominating the Chinese market. And people say, oh, that'll never happen. But 20 years ago, no one had ha heard of LG mm -hmm. um, or, or as a gold star as they used to be. It's funny. I remember gold star and then suddenly gold LG star. turned up. I thought, oh, wonder what happened to gold. Oh, actually, it's the same company. And then, you know, Samsung dominates the market. No one knew they even existed 15 years ago. Right. right. So I, I think the name thing's gone away. Who cares? And it's fascinating because a lot of times it's the same stuff inside. It's just a different name. And we're used to that now where we know we have, I don't know what, 12 or 13 different projectors that really are one company's components and they just rebrand it, rebox it, resize sure. it, and move it on. TVs are the same. Cameras are the same. Everyone talks about, oh, I, I'm a Nikon guy or I'm a Canon guy or I'm a – well, actually, uh, Sony make all the lenses uh, – make all the sensors for all of them. Yeah. So, Andrew, you were, you were going to say something? I cut you off. Well, um, a TV is hard for me to weigh in on now because it's such a consumer item, but compare it to maybe home automation in 20 years, do we think a similar thing could happen in that market? Undoubtedly. Everything. This is the problem. Everything other than healthcare and education is, is trending to free. And, and that's a major problem for anyone trying to sell it. You know, a, um, a commentator on Fred Wilson's blog, Fred Wilson's a, um, a venture capitalist here out of New York City, I think it's Union Ca Venture Capital or something. They're behind like Tumblr and blog spheres and all kinds of different technologies. But he once had a comment about the virus of free <laughs> and that it truly is, you know, how do you get out from free once you've done it and what advantages do you have and are they really worth finally being an innovator but not being the one who makes the money off of it? Uh, you know, it's a, it's a very odd thing. Now, Jenny, I'll, I'll bring this to you because we mentioned automation systems. Do you foresee a time like these gold stars, like the LGs coming out, or 
a company getting out of the manufacturing of the hardware to, say, being X company inside of a box? So it's really the technology of the, bo of the company, not the hardware? That's a good question. I haven't... It, certainly it is possible 10, 15 well, years from now, yeah. Would you, would you be thinking about installing, say, AMX inside in a box that's made the size of, say, a Nook, <laughs> one of those Intel Nooks or something that has full features of AMX, and it's just inside, just like Intel inside. They'll come up with a three or four tone chime, and <laughs> that's the company they are, intellectual. Certainly, I think things could definitely go that way um, as technology gets smaller and... Um, as it, as it grows, I think that's a certain How would that change how you do installs, though? Would you be reducing labor now? Would it be more on the planning side and component? I mean, what would how would that change things? Well, we're very service-based, so you would still definitely keep your planning side, your qualifying the client side, and making sure that they whatever you install meets their needs. So definitely probably the install side would go down, and your hardware sales, I would imagine, would go down as well. So it is all about the, again, we, we started at the beginning, the uh, recurring revenue of services and maintenance rather than the guy running wires or installing the newest uh, right. transport protocol. Or the remote even. managing, yeah. Mm. Mm -hmm. It seems to be happening on the commercial side as well in that sense. It's accelerating there. But All right, well, let's go to something else that's accelerating quite quickly, actually, in the minds of our clients uh, and a lot of the general public wearables. This is stuff that we all know, our Fitbits, our Nike stuff, our um, Apple Watch, which we'll get to with some of this in a minute. What will make wearable technology take off? This is from the EE Times. This is the electrical engineering newsletter, basically. Um, pretty heady stuff at times. But their main point here is that wearables are still a ways off because, well, folks, they're just too clunky and unmanageable. That, that needs some more progression in a couple of years. Simon, I'm going to throw this to you. Are we really at that point where they're too, too, still too large? Is an Apple Watch still something too clunky? Or are the EE guys looking to sell more, you know, 10 nanometer chips? <laughs> I, I think this is part of the problem, right? This is my Fitbit, mm. and it's on charge. Mm -hmm. Again. Again, yes. And every time I use it, I put it on charge again, uh, which means I take it off because I can't charge it on my wrist. And then then I sometimes remember to put it back on. Hmm. And then other times I don't put it back on and leave it in the car or the office and then oh. don't wear it for a week and then put a normal watch on. I, I think that wearables are going to be gigantic. And I think partly for the stop you looking at your iPhone type reasons, but more than that, I think from a health point of view, and I've done some some um, work in this field, that from a health point of view, one of the things that matters is not, for example, what your heart rate, your blood pressure, or your glucose level is at the point that the doctor measures it. It's how it trended over the last 12 months. And having a sticky thing that, that will measure all those things, like all the contact lenses that measure your blood sugar level, which exist but aren't commercially available, all of that stuff will be transformative, but none of that stuff exists today. I mean, I know Apple Watch has now taken whatever it was, 87% of the market, but they're, um, but 87% of what? And from the point of view of, I've yet to see very many people wearing this stuff. So I think it's fantastic, but it's a way, but when you say a way off, as we've discussed before, right? Moore's law suggests, if you double your compute power or half the power powered required for the same compute power or however you measure it, five years is 10x better. I think five years from now, it'll be a very different world. And, and still, but five years is a long way away too. I mean, there's still a lot of hardware to be sold and a lot of things that are pushed that aren't going to get out there because five years is where it's at. I mean, you mentioned the patch, uh, which is one of those things that they're starting to say will be the true endpoint for, I guess, wearables is a disposable... Or maybe even an embeddable. I think, uh, Andrea, you may have been on a show when we talked about yeah, we the actual about <laughs> physical embeddable stuff that you just get in once rather than throwing it out and filling it in a landfill. Uh, Jenny, let me throw this to you for a minute, though, because we just talked about with you, with Control 4 and some other stuff, the hardware, right? The sort of user experience of wanting that brand name of the thing that they know they can go to the Genius Bar and hold. Is there a mm -hmm. sort of 
diminishing value point of saying we can provide you with connections to your device uh, and something that really isn't a device anymore. Uh, I think before the show, Simon, you mentioned Zero UI, uh, which is something that's been coming up a lot. Uh, and, and to you, Jenny, I say, well, these things are Zero UI. Are we mm -hmm. ready to actually implement it in the commercial and residential automation spaces with any kind of reliability? I'm, well, I'm really excited about these patches and the medical implications. And you think, well, that's just medical, but it, it really isn't. It has a home component, too, because what if you have aging parents and they live in another state? Well, perhaps these patches could measure their blood levels and you would know that they're safe or that they took their medication and you would need some kind of component between that patch and your house to be able to give you that information. So I'm really excited about the future and the not having the UOI. Um, I, I'm really excited for the future of, of where technology is going. Andrew, I want to take a little bit of a different angle with you on this. Um, how okay. much do you think the market in this with the, the, the home builder market uh, is about older parents, is about uh, houses that are being fitted for those parents so that the children can keep eye and keep watch and would this kind of technology be something of an advantage in selling and that the house is ready to go um, you know the accelerometers instead of having my help I fall in and I can't get up you don't have to push a button mm -hmm. it knows um, there I'm gonna answer this in two facets aging mm -hmm. in place is huge right now I just mm -hmm. went to SEVC and I sat in on a session and actually talked to a woman named Wanda two days ago about aging in place. I'm putting an article together right now and the reason is builders are really interested in this right now. It's something they're implementing and it's something we're starting to see. We're seeing video conferencing. Wanda's thinking uh, down the road, you won't have to take your parents to the doctor. We'll have these devices where we'll be able to tell how they're doing from the home. We'll have robots that will be able to do the video conferencing, make sure they're taking their medication stuff like that. That's stuff that's being talked about right now. Not all of that's being implemented, but it's definitely something builders are looking into, and it's definitely something that's being talked about at these builder conferences. Um, not just this one, but I've seen it at several conferences so far. But I also want to talk about the wearables, because we put out an article called Four Ways Wearables Impact the Smart Home, and it was one of our most uh, viewed articles that we've had recently, so builders are definitely interested and reading about wearables, and you ask why, it's the security factor. Think about the home automation that say they can tell when you're driving up and you have your smartphone, so they'll open the door. Well, you're more likely to have your wearable on you than your smartphone. So there's kind of a security element there. There's also this uh, wristband called NIMI, and I apologize if I'm not uh, saying that correctly, but it recognizes the unique pattern of your heartbeat. So it can tell when you're getting close to the door to let you in. So there's oh, definitely a lot of different, really exciting technologies out there, which are really important for what they call geofencing, which is the geo GPS systems that a lot of these automation systems use. And like I said, your phone, maybe it's in your pocket, maybe it fell out in the car, maybe you left it somewhere. You're less likely to leave a wristband or your watch somewhere than your phone. Mm -hmm. I would agree. Now, the, the other half of that entire market, every, let's be honest, we live in a in the West in a society that wants to care for its parents, but doesn't mm -hmm. actually want to care for its parents. Much better to outsource <laughs> it to some other organization. And therefore, it's a guilt reliever, right? The, the video conference mm -hmm. or the where's mum wandering off. But there's or the even the security systems that can you can have a camera in there and see from your smartphone how your mom's doing. You know, you don't have to be there anymore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, good God, you wouldn't want to speak to her. So much better <laughs> to just have a one-way conversation. Oh, look, she's still alive. Good. Guilt down. Get on with whatever it is I'm doing. But there's the other half of the same thing, which is parents looking after kids. I mean, mm -hmm. I've got two teenage boys. Yeah. I, I'm pretty good at not worrying, but but a hell of a lot of people spend most of their waking hours terrified that their kid is drunk, taking meth, in a car, <laughs> speeding somewhere, being picked up by the police. And well, isn't that what all the kids are doing these days? If you read the news, yes, <laughs> but not. But you know, you, there's that definite sense of we use. Uh, find my phone on a relatively regular basis. Of course, my mm -hmm. boys are 14 and 13. They're never not with their iPhones. But if they had a wristband that was glued on, 
perhaps to their forehead. Glued on. I like that. Then, then there would be there would be none of this. Well, we left the phone in a locker so we could go off and do something else. So I think that there's there's basically two markets. There's the I'm looking after mum and dad without actually looking after mum and dad, and then there's the where are my kids? And we well, call that multi generational living, and that is also really huge right now. So, as opposed to the rest of the world that actually has a multi-generational living in a single house, this is yeah. multi-generational living in four states. Do that, You said glued, but actually something that may not need to be glued, but stapled would be fine. What's the other option? Is something that maybe if they need to get into the house, as I'm showing on screen now, uh, you, they would always have it because if they can't get into the house, well, then they don't have the device. Uh, the company from the Daily Mail over in the UK, uh, no more fumbling for your keys. Unlock your front door with a swipe and a tap. Okay, mm -hmm. this is the company August. Not the month August that we're in, but the company August. Now, I bring this up because we've often had this debate about very small niche show automation systems that really aren't universal and people will eventually tire of them. We keep saying to ourselves that people are going to tire of being on an iPhone and having to open the app and having to go find the TV remote and switching it, but yet they seem to still be happy to do it. Um, Jenny, I'm going to throw this to you for a start. Is a very niche, one-off service something that the clientele really wants and then you add on to it? And maybe give them some of the other stuff. Hey, if you do that, you can actually, you know, see the temperature. Or, as Simon said, I can see that my kids are actually home. Uh, they're not uh, raiding the liquor cabinet, that kind of thing. Well, certainly my clients are more interested in, in having it in one location. I think it's very cumbersome to open up multiple apps to, to handle multiple things, like you were just saying. Um, but certainly there are other door locks where you can let the handyman in. You can know when your kids are home and when they leave. Um, there are other options for this. So whether it's biometrics um, or key codes, there, there are many options out there. So I think this has the cool feature of the Apple Watch, but whether people adopt it, it, it time will tell. Well, let me ask you this, though. Do you think it's sort of a gateway drug to our advantage, or is it, uh, <laughs> or is it just that one-off and they're not going to want us anymore through it? Uh, it might be a gateway drug or, you know, something fun at the party. You know, here's your code to get into my house. I don't see it going much further than that. I'm just, uh, just going to have to, George, I'm sorry. I'm going to have to stop us all there and just confirm that you just said the gateway judge to mm -hmm. our advantage Gateway drug, yes. Yeah. Oh, that's fine. I, I, I thought you said something not completely horrific. I'm, I'm your pusher. I'm your pusher. Um, there was a rap song right there, right? I think it was Ice-T back in the day. Um, Andrew, we talk a lot with you about multi-generational. We talk about millennials buying houses. Uh, and what often it is with trying to sell the tech, of course. Uh, do you see this one-off niche, one-action thing being an advantage? Is it a toy, or does it really help sell something? Well, first of all, George, with all this talk of drugs and alcohol during the show today, I'm just not sure I can come back. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, all but I have to say is, obviously, you've never been to a trade show with us. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I agree with Jenny wholeheartedly um, about these items. Uh, biometrics, we just wrote about that too. Fingerprinting, having yourself like your wearable. I don't, I think this is something that is going to grow. I don't think it's going to go away. I think we're just seeing the start of these types of technologies where you can put your finger up to your lock and it knows that it's you. It's going to let you in. Security, all of this has to do with home security. And that seems to be what is most important to the consumer right now, whether it's millennials, whether it's parents, whether it's aging in place. I think security is really what wraps all around it. And these types of technologies make people feel more safe. And that means they're likely going to use them. Well, let me, mm -hmm. let me stop you there with the safe, though. And I'm going to throw this to Jenny, and then I'll throw part of it, I think, mm -hmm. to Simon. Jenny, she said safety, Andrea. But how safe do we really feel with this technology? Is that one of the advantages we can have? Is that, I mean, this this operates on what Bluetooth and some other wireless protocol? I forget for the moment. I apologize. Um, but is it really safe? I mean, Bluetooth's eminently hackable. Uh, do we really want to trust that that could happen? I mean, look what just happened with uh, the F1 racer. Supposedly, he got he and his wife got gassed and they stole everything around them. 
I don't know if you read that story, but how safe do we really feel that I can sell as an integrator? This is an automated well, lock. It's safe for you. That's interesting because, you know, with the biometrics, it's your fingerprint. With this watch, it's, it's the watch and the lock. And if you read the comments in the article, most of them are, well, what if somebody steals your watch? Well, what if somebody steals your keys? So I think there are still a lot of, the consumer still has a lot of concerns about this particular technology, and it is only imminent until the Bluetooth is hackable. So. Hmm. Simon, we've seen that they can um, hack cars. They just did it to a Tesla. Exactly. Uh, Tesla seems to have a better way of doing that, you know, of getting rid around and patching, <laughs> as it were. Um, but are we really concerned? Do, we, do you trust it? Would you put that in your house? No. <laughs> but not not for the reasons that Jenny suggested, right? So, for example, they can steal the watch. Well, and I've, uh, the the um, Apple Watch has a feature in it that if you take the watch off your wrist, it stops noticing your heart rate. If it stops noticing your heart rate, when you put it back on, you have to put the password back in. Mm-hmm. So you don't get that with the front door key. Mm. Uh, you, now, you could argue that if they've hacked the watch, they'll know where you live. I mean, it's one of the things with GPSs that work when people actually had GPSs in cars and get in, steal the car and then say, go home. Right. And if they have the keys, they can just walk into your house mm-hmm. and use your car to remove all your goods and drive away. And I mean, it's a fantastic system. But <laughs> I, I trust a Yale Bolt significantly more than I do a Bluetooth thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that I would be concerned that have I patched the done the latest security patch on the front door is not a problem I've ever experienced. Interesting having, concept, yeah. Having said that, I do want to go back just very briefly to your point about everyone's point so far about gateway drugs. <laughs> I think that a gate or, or that technology, right? Um, I forget who said it, but someone's meant one of us mentioned that having multiple apps is a problem. And I agree, right? My house is basically an Apple house, and everything in their house is basically Apple, apart from one of the boys is an Android, but we don't talk about him. And uh, what happens is that when, for example, I'm thinking about getting a Nest thermostat, because I don't understand the existing thermostat I have. It's not broken. I just don't understand it. And so Nest thermostat, well, if I get Nest, then I'll get a drop cam. If I get a drop cam, when Google comes out with a lock, I'll get the Google lock. When Apple, when Google comes up with the next, so they've got into my house, as it were, their gateway into my world is mm-hmm. one item, and the item in that case would be the um, would be the Nest thermostat. This company that's made the autumn, no, the August, sorry, yep. uh, the, that's their way in. But unless they got the backing of a big player, they're going to struggle. And I think Google knew this. That's why they bought Dropcam and they bought Nest for that matter. Mm-hmm. They buy the, and the and the uh, the CO2 and the smoke detectors and all that. And the Brillo now, the Brillo technology they got from someone. There you go. So you're building an ecosystem. Yep. Now, none of them, Apple, Google, anybody, has a full solution. So what they're all doing is muddying the waters for everybody else. Yeah. And it is a concern, which is why, Jenny, when we talk about it, I wanted to bring it up with you. Is like there is a muddied water, and it, the choices went from a few that seem to be only just for the dedicated or for the wealthy to now everybody can have it, but I don't know what to have. There are a lot of options and what do you piece together and what does that look like and how reliable is it if you mesh them all together in kind of a Band-Aid fashion. So it'll be interesting to see where we go from here. I do feel like it's always trying to tack down the carpet. You know, that one corner keeps popping up when we get into this situation, (laughs) right? And I know it's measure twice, cut once, but sometimes we don't do that. Uh, all right. Well, we're running out of time here, so let's get to one or two more stories uh, before we have we go to Andrea for her tech home builder uh, review. Uh, the next one is Amazon. As Amazon again, not just because they have Top Gear, but because they have Alexa, the voice control in anyone's device. It's currently in beta. This is supposed to be the ability to use any voice with really great recognition, besides uh, uh, accents and regional you know, nomenclature and, and, and voice patterns, uh, for anyone to add it to their systems. Now, I famously said I am not a gesture, uh, and I still agree with that. And the voice thing bothers me a little bit, but not nearly as much. Uh, Jenny, I'm sorry, Jenny, I, Andrea? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Would I really be at an advantage building a house and, and having in my, maybe my entire community a voice recognition and activation, say, for the gate on a gated community or for some of the common areas of a, you know, a, a suburban track that is, I forget the name for that, I apologize, where which you have homeowners associations. 
is is this an advantage or is it something that most people would find a little maybe creepy? If it works. <laughs> it's an advantage so if that it into works. It. The thing is, I don't know, like with everything that's happened with voice technology in the past, I don't know how many builders would trust to make a whole community voice technology based. When it comes to builders, they turn to companies they trust. They turn to companies that haven't burned them in the past, and that's the same with different types of technologies. So I don't know if voice control is where we need it to be for a lot of builders to trust it at this mm. point. I mean, think about Siri. Think about how many times you tried to tell her what you want, <laughs> and she just can't I'm figure it out. I'm not saying ducking. I'm not saying duck. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to trusting a technology. And it just depends how trustworthy voice control is. And I don't think it's that trustworthy right now. Uh, Jenny, do you agree with Andrea's assessment of any kind of voice activation for the home? Or do you really see a, a, a general usefulness for it and maybe even a desire for it from uh, our clients? Well, based on the reviews, this is the most hopeful I've felt about a voice technology. I mean, it seems to be pretty reliable and understand many types of voices. So. To me, that's exciting. I think we have a long way to go to see what we can do. You know, it's one thing from saying, hey, order, you know, I need laundry detergent, can you order that, um, to being reliable with your lights because that's not something you really want to play with in the middle of the night. So <laughs> I, I, I'm hopeful. Well, can we get at least to have it replace the clapper? That's all I want to have happen at this right. point. Because <laughs> that thing's still out there. It's one reliable product. It is. It's, not... it's kind of scary. Yeah, it is kind of scary. Simon, I'm, I'm just tempted to think that what would the voice back be? Are we entering a period where we're going to get really goofy again and like our home answering machines? Remember the old tape machines? We're going to have celebrity voices answering us back? <laughs> oh, we don't have you, Simon. There I'm you go. sorry. Yes, That's I right. must, must press the mute button 24 years in the video conferencing industry. I <laughs> I think it's fantastic stuff because I'm already noticing. It's funny. You you want to know the, what the future is going to look like? You put a 13 and a 14 year old in your house, right? It, they, it, they play with all the technology all the time in ways that I think are ridiculous and highly inappropriate, mostly. But you <laughs> at least get to see you, new user experiences. Um, Siri rules it out. Any question I ask the boys, any question, normally about if they've done their homework, they ask Siri about it. <laughs> And uh, the Siri will give them the answer. And normally it's a joke answer. But I, I think this whole idea of a, U, a zero UX, a zero user experience, is either things that are completely automated that just guess very accurately what you want, and that's certainly coming, or voice activated where there is no user interface at all. I think is uh, going to be huge in all of technology in the next 10 years because the voice recognition, it even recognize Siri, I I'm really screwed up because there's Siri US, Siri UK and Siri Australia and I lived in Australia for five years. I've lived in the US for five but lived here half the time for 15 and so I'm sort of halfway, there like, should be a mid-Atlantic version. <laughs> but it even recognizes my voice these days and people will talk about, ah, oh, but my user interface is, uh, is intuitive. No, it's not. It may be familiar. It may be reasonably easy to pick up, but there is no such thing as intuitive. They've done research with kids they brought to the U.S. from African villages some year, many years ago, and they didn't know how to use door handles because they'd never lived in a house with a door in it. Mm -hmm. And so people go, oh, a door handle. Obviously, you just twist the door handle. It's not obvious at all unless you've seen one. And I think that's true about all this technology. Voice is, you could argue, voice isn't intuitive either. You have to learn to speak, but once you have just working with that technology as a voice prompt and then you could argue all the technology behind it constantly changes is something the user doesn't have to care less about. I think it's going to be massive. Hmm. Interesting. And just to take off on that for a minute, Jenny, uh, Simon mentioned predictive and I'm a big fan of that. Maybe the actual ultimate zero UX UI is predictive. I mean, could we see that becoming the big selling point of I've got the gear that can do this, that once it's set up and we take you through the paces, our services provide you with predictive technology. Walk in the house, it knows exactly what you want to do. Uh, sit down and fidget, it knows that you want to do you know, sports on, not, uh, not Bravo. I think we're already on our way there with um, 
some of the technologies you can set things based on time, but I think we're going to need systems that are learnable, uh, similar to Nest, but on a grander scale so that they can learn more of your time of day experiences and um, your body movements. But I, I, at this point, I think consumers are a little leery of cameras in their space. Yeah, cameras, although predictive of you know, its body motion sensing, that kind of stuff. But yeah, if I, if I yeah. wander out of my out of my bedroom at you know crack of eight thirty in the morning, um, it should know to put the kettle on hmm. and to put some toast on and to feed the dogs and <laughs> in fact all the things that would indicate that I don't actually need to get out of bed. Meet Simon Dudley, his boy Elroy. Physical transfer, right? Your wife wouldn't be named Jane, would she? No. No. Okay. Well, it's uh, near the end of the show, and we have on Andrea Medeiros, who's always with us on the first Friday of the month from the fabulous magazine Tech Home Builder. This is a magazine dedicated, or at least focused, on the building home building community and about getting tech into it. They do seminars, they do uh, trade shows, the whole bit. And we have Andrea on once a month to tell us what her readership is really sort of digging into, what technologies they're sort of paying special interest to. So, Andrea, I hand it over to you. What are the top stories this month going on? Uh, we actually touched on almost all of the topics in our discussion today, which says, I guess we're on the right track here at Tech Home Builder. Um, the first story I have for you today is five questions on biometric technology, which Jenny talked a little bit about, uh, uh, fingerprint sensing. Uh, measurements related to human characteristics is the definition of biometrics. The idea is builders install this type of technology. They market it to the consumers as you walk up to your front door, you put your finger on the door or any other type of technology, and it knows who you are. Um, and then we also touch on the security of that. Like I said, security is a big issue with builders and consumers right now. Um, the second article I have for you today is called three smart home products you might not know about. Um, and we talked a little bit about that in the beginning of this presentation, how there are so many home automation products on the market right now. So we're trying to introduce builders to as many of them as possible, but also kind of review them for the builders. Because as I said earlier, there are just so many products out there from Savant to Tio to Notion to Fabaro to Control4. Everyone's waiting for the Apple HomeKit. So we kind of try to break down those products and how they might work for the builder, what type of builder they're better for, whether it's high volume, multifamily, luxury. We break that down for our audience. Um, the third story is called Too Much Too Soon, Advice for Securing IoT Tech. That actually touches on Bluetooth and Wi-Fi technology, some of the concerns that Simon had mentioned. Is that safe? Can we hack into them? Some of the things that, that builders are doing to try to make sure in the future that these systems don't get hacked. Um, because Bluetooth and Wi-Fi are going to be very vulnerable to hackers, and in some cases they already are. So builders kind of talk about monitoring network traffic, choosing the right provider, working with an integrator, different ways that you can make sure that these homes are safe, and also adding IT specialists to their companies. Different things you're going to have to do as these technologies get even bigger and bigger in the marketplace, you're going to have to start adding these positions to your company because they're going to be needed. Um, we also did a builder profile on the Ainsley Group. They're out of Virginia Beach. We kind of talked about the type of technology they're offering as standard now. So we're talking about security panels, connected interior and exterior lighting, wireless doorbells, smart thermostats are huge right now. So we also do profiles like that and success stories so other builders can learn from them. And then finally, um, we have a story that's a little bit different. It's on crowdfunded tech, which you ask yourself, why would a builder care about crowdfunded tech? That's not really a professionally installed system. It's usually outlets or something the consumer could install. But what about builders or even integrators learning from these technologies, searching the technologies that are being crowdfunded or they're on Kickstarter campaigns those are usually te the technologies consumers are interested in. So builders and integrators can kind of learn about the different technologies that could be the hot technology coming up in the next five years. So those are just a few of the topics we're working on right now, as well as preparing for the CECI Summit that's coming up in just a couple weeks that we're also putting on um, in Washington, D.C. You know, I'm intrigued by the biometric thing. Um, 
that you mentioned. I, and, and I'm always wondering like how much of it does do. I guess it's the key you'll never lose. Um, mm -hmm. But is it really that sort of? Is there a really big drive for it for the for the residential market? I, I'm I'm sort of intrigued by that. I think it's depending whether you're talking about high volume or luxury. Luxury mm -hmm. dips into all of this technology so much earlier than, say, a production builder would. And they're always looking for the latest and greatest technology to offer to their clients who have the money to spend on it. Uh, we talked to a company called Invixium, and they've been doing this for a little while now, and it's one of those companies that builders trust. So I definitely urge you to look into them and look into our article because I think it's going to be something we see making a difference in the market in the next five years. All right, well, I want to thank all of you guys for coming on. Uh, it's been a really cool conversation. I hope you always enjoy it. Uh, first of all, I want to thank Jenny Millpacker. She is from DeMille Global. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. I enjoyed it. Jenny, where can they find out more about you and or DeMille? Um, our website's demilleglobal.com. I had a little technical difficulty with my lower third. That's okay. Uh, uh, and what kind of work do you guys do? Just give us a little bit of... Uh, background? Um, I am an integrator. Uh, I tend to deal with the higher end custom luxury builds. All right. Uh, and of course, that was Andrea Medeiros from Tech Home Builder. Thank you again for being on. Thank you. I always enjoy being here. All right. Of course, it's techhomebuilder.com, but where else can they find out more about you guys on social? We're on all of the social media sites. You can look up Tech Home Builder on Facebook, also Andrea Medeiros Tech Home on Facebook, also Tech Home Builder on Twitter, Andrea A. Medeiros on Twitter. You can always email me. You can find that on our website. We're also on LinkedIn under Tech Home Builder and also under my name. Uh, we're on Pinterest. You can basically find us anywhere under Tech Home Builder. <laughs> I'm just going to give you my tagline, which is, if it's on social, I'm under this one. There you go. <laughs> I, bought, I bought them all if I had to. And, of course, Simon Dudley. Accession events. Sir, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, thank you, George. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Now, um, we didn't get to it yet, but tell us more about what's there behind you, The End of Certainty. This is a book you wrote, a really fabulous book, actually. Well, thank you for saying so. Um, and painly said by someone who hasn't quite got around to reading it yet. I know you haven't read it because it only came out yesterday. Yes, but you gave me the skinny on it, which is just as good. Well, fair enough. So the, 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 the general <laughs> premise of the book is that the problem we live in is that everyone defines their business as growing by a linear way. Every company defines next year will look like this year, but 10% better. And what actually happens is, is that success in markets changes and what the success criteria looks like changes. You can ask wooden wheel makers, you can ask WordPerfect, you can ask Nokia or any number of other organizations what they were doing. They're all doing everything fine until someone came along and completely redefined what success looks like. The book's about not only that happening, not only the way that that rate of change is now increasing at an exponential rate, but also about, and most importantly, what you can do about it. So how to build a company culture that looks out for uh, changes, looks out for the idea that the CEO can go mad and basically tell everybody what they're going to do forever and not realize that actually groups think will get your organization killed. So there's practical help in what to do as well as this is really scary and if you're not frightened, you don't understand. And besides Amazon, is there any other place we can acquire this book? No. No? Amazon. Amazon uh, we do Kindle or, or paperback version. You'll get the paperback version in two days. You'll get the Amazon version in about 37 seconds. Exactly. In fact, well, Amazon is one of the accession events. Accession event is a def definition of a redefined success criteria. Amazon's one of the perfect examples of the genre. So it seemed very logical to work with them on this book. Very cool, very cool. Uh, where else can they find you? You on social or any of those uh, platforms? Yeah, I mean, Google me, Simon Dudley, Twitter, Simon Dudley, LinkedIn, uh, accessionevents.com for my website. Uh, I'm hard not to find if you're looking for me, and I'd be delighted to get some feedback if anyone wants to give it to me. Well, there you go. Uh, guys, I'd like to thank you. Uh, this has been a great show. This has been a production of AV Nation TV. Uh, please come to our website. It's avnationtv.com. You'll find 
this and many more shows on everything from Pico Projection uh, on the power over Ethernet. That is a show about taking control of Ethernet, not just the power on it. Uh, we have shows about EdTech. We have shows about the maker movement, which involves a lot of AV people. This and many, many more shows. But we also have a great blog these days. With our new site is a blog that we have a lot of guests, uh, writers, and our staff. Uh, talking about stuff like uh, Josh Frago again on network neutrality uh, with the forgotten layer three, uh, a nifty little blog about dead mouse or dead mouse I think it is, I never say it right. Uh, uh, about simplicity and product design, actually a really good article about how uh, customer needs really drives uh, innovation and how some companies respond better than others. Uh, this and many more there. It's avnationtv.com. There you'll find this and many more, and I want to thank you all for watching, and we look forward to speaking to all of you again very soon.